Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. On today's program, I'll check out a new exhibition that spotlights the legacy of influential Art Nouveau architect and designer Hector Guimard. The Dueling Critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a new production of Rock of Ages. Later in the show, I'll catch up with the two founders of a big band that's interested in going beyond traditional repertoire. And I'll take you with on my visit to a local fan convention that's celebrating all things pop culture. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture this morning. Pioneering architect, designer, and artist Hector Guimard is the subject of a new exhibition in Chicago. The Frenchman was a leader in the Art Nouveau movement that took shape during the Belle Epoque era, but for various reasons, he's sometimes overlooked outside of Europe. Now, the Driehaus Museum is putting a spotlight on the trailblazing creative with an exhibit titled Hector Guimard, Art Nouveau to Modernism. And if you're not familiar with the name, you've likely seen examples of his work or his influence on contemporary design. Guimard's most well-known contribution is the design and creation of Paris's original metro station entrances, his use of cast iron and glass in combination with plant-like curves and a modern font was considered radical at the time, but that forward-thinking approach is now often remembered as a celebration of accessible beauty. The exhibition, co-organized with Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York City, contains a number of pieces from the late Richard H. Driehaus personal collection. I recently visited the Driehaus Museum to learn more about Hector Guimard. Hector Guimard was not a well-known person in North America, but of course was the founder and visionary architect and designer of Art Nouveau, was a leader of that movement in Paris that uh, emerged in Europe in the late 19th century. This is Sally Ann Felgenhauer, director of collections and exhibitions at the Driehaus Museum. He is known for his signature style, known, known as Le Style Guimard, and also um, the Metro. Uh, he's well known for the metro designs uh, known as Le Steel Metro. So I think those are what are immediately identifiable to him now uh, around the world. Often inspired by natural forms, Art Nouveau had a major influence on architecture and design at the turn of the century from 1890 to 1910. Art Nouveau is a movement that radically moves away from classical and revival styles to a more naturalistic, organic form of, of design that's seen in buildings and art, architecture and designs. So what would be uh, an aesthetic element of Art Nouveau that might be incorporated into a piece of architecture? Um, very curvilinear uh, whiplash, I think that's the term used for what you visually see in a lot of his designs. Organic, floral, and fauna, um, inspired by nature primarily. He starts as an architect, is designing buildings, but really, as visitors will see in the exhibit, he's he's designing lots of things. Yes, in fact, um, 
Um, he's designed his uh, wife's wedding dress and the jewelry, their home together. They believed in um, a term called Gesamtkunstwerk, which means a total work of art. So what that meant for them is that they not only designed and executed these incredible pieces, but they lived that as well. They lived that, they incorporated that into their daily lives. After studying architecture, Guimard began making a name for himself through his take on Art Nouveau. What brought him to fame primarily is his building designs in the Art Nouveau um, style. Uh, Castle Beranger, for example, was the first uh, commission that he was given that was a building created in this Art Nouveau style. Guimard designed more than 50 buildings between 1890 and 1930 including the interiors and the furniture and the wallpaper. Again, getting back to that term I've used more than once now, but the Gesamtkunstwerk, uh, which is an overarching theme in this entire exhibition, whereby it's a matter of living the design as well as creating it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. I'm talking to Sally Ann Felgenhauer, Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Driehaus Museum in Chicago. The River North Neighborhood Museum is presenting a new exhibit on acclaimed French architect and designer Hector Guimard. The exhibition is in Chicago after a run at its partner organization in New York. It's a joint exhibition co-organized with the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum in New York. And my understanding from the curator, David Hanks, that the genesis for this exhibition came from um, the Richard H. Driehaus collection. Richard had one of the most important private collections in North America of Guimard pieces. And in that conversation with David, it just seemed natural for this exhibition to develop. One thing that, that came up as you were walking me through the exhibit and showing me different things was that not only his incredible talent and eye for detail, but also he was a pioneer in a couple of different aspects. He was a pioneer. He was also a great marketeer and um, self-promoter for uh, one of the expositions that he presented his work at. He created a series of custom postcards of the works that he had created to promote himself. It's like handing out your business card, in essence. So he created a group of 24 uh, postcards for one exhibition at the 1900 Exposition Universelle. And even something like his signature, you would incorporate it into his buildings. Yes, he would um, sign his buildings as he also felt like it, it's, it's not just art and architecture separate unities. It was all, for him, art, just as his life and the way he lived was considered art. He would sign the buildings. You know, I think he called himself at one point l'art de l'architecture. <laughs> right. So. And I know you can't speak for Mr. Driehaus, but is anything known about what his interest was in Guimard? Richard H. Driehaus, our founder of this museum, was a collector of this style of artwork. Uh, he collected things that, as I understand, that were important to him. And he had an incredible eye <laughs> um, as we are looking at um, what we have here for this exhibition. We have a great number of works from the private collection, the Richard H. Driehaus collection. Um, and several pieces are unique in that uh, we have a beautiful tall case clock in uh, the first theme of the exhibition, which is about Monsieur and Madame Guimard. And there's only two in the world, and Mr. Driehaus owns one. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to incorporate that into our exhibition. 
Richard H. Driehaus had one of the most important private collections of Guimar in North America. He's not, he wasn't really well known as a collector. It's a co-organized exhibition with the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum. We have um, loans from private lenders and we have uh, the Metropolitan in New York, MoMA, uh, Cooper Hewitt, and we have reproductions of items from the Musée d'Orsay also presented in this exhibition. Lots of unique things on display in this exhibition, including light fixtures and pieces of furniture designed by Guimard, and also some individual pieces of those original metro station entrances. Felgenhauer is hopeful the exhibit sheds some new light on a somewhat forgotten but influential architect and artist. I hope they take away a wonderful experience, not only experiencing Guimard, but also the uh, Samuel Mayer Nickerson Mansion, the Driehaus Museum. This architect and designer um, who is, speaks to a lot of what we see in the Driehaus Museum. That was Sally Ann Felgenhauer. She's the Director of Collections and Exhibitions at the Driehaus Museum. The institution's new exhibit, Hector Guimard, Art Nouveau to Modernism, will be on display through November 5th. You can find more information at driehausmuseum.org. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday morning here on WDCB, thank you. Make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. Check out theartsection.org. And also, a reminder, you can always reach out to me with a comment, question, or suggestion. My email is gzydic at wdcb.org. Or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or X or whatever it's called these days with the handle at onairgary. And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. It might be hard for younger generations to believe today, but there was a period of time when hair metal ruled the suburbs. In the 80s and early 90s, young people looking for a more sparkling form of rebellion than punk or hip-hop turned to Guns N' Roses, Bon Jovi, and Motley Crue. Then grunge came along, and glam rock went the way of dinosaurs and blockbuster video. Fast forward to 2005, a small jukebox musical celebrating that era of eyelinered music began to generate a lot of attention in Los Angeles. Titled Rock of Ages, the musical eventually made its way to Broadway, where it ran for over 2,300 performances between 2009 and 2015, and since has been performed in cities all over the world, including here in Chicago, a few times. This summer, a new production opened at the Mercury Theater on the north side of town, Directed here by Tommy Novak, this production of Rock of Ages stars David Moreland and Kayla Marie Shipman as star-crossed lovers who want to rock. Carrie, would you say this is closer to nothing but a good time, or is it more, we're not going to take it? I think 
having nothing but a good time. Uh, the performance that I saw, I, there was a, a, a large and boisterous group of Gen Xers out celebrating a birthday, and they had a great time by all accounts. It is a fun time. I have my own quibbles with the idea of how shows like this are, are put together. Um, but it's more in the sense of like a Mamma Mia, and that there is a plot, however loosely developed, around these songs rather than uh, you know, a, a bio musical about the bands themselves. Um, it's set in a kind of a grungy sunset strip uh, rock club called the Bourbon Room. Uh, Sherry is an aspiring actress who starts working there. She falls in love with uh, with Drew, who is an aspiring rocker. The, uh, the the narrator for all of this is Lonnie, who's a little bit like um, the MC in Cabaret, only with you know more ripped up jeans and spandex and all the rest of the, <laughs> the apparel and the long hair. Uh, it, you know, it, it, I have to say, if you like this sort of thing, then this is exactly the place that you should see it. I've only seen Rock of Ages once before. It was on the I think the first national tour. I don't know how many they've had at this point. And in a larger house, it just kind of felt, it got swallowed up and it just didn't resonate much. But I think at least at the Mercury, which is a more intimate setting, you get a little bit more of a sense of the intimacy of the bourbon room. That sort of, as I said, a grungy rock club where people kind of know each other and everyone's kind of just hanging on, waiting for their big break. Um, the voices in this are excellent, especially, as you mentioned, the two leads. I think that um, David Moreland and um, Kayla Marie Shipman do a really excellent job. Uh, Moreland, in particular, towards the end, carries out a note to mind-boggling lengths and was met with a hearty round of applause for that at the show that I saw. Um, but, I mean, is there depth here? Not a whole lot. Jonathan, what did you think? I know you were very very big in the hair metal scene back in the day, so I wanted to you know, catch your, your, your view you, on that. You, you should have seen my hair back then. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to know first, Carrie, you and I are a little late catching up with Rock of Age. It's just, it, right. it opened at the Mercury Theater in mid-July, but it still has a month to go. It runs to September 10th. So fans uh, will have ample time to see it. And I agree with you on one point, without question. This is a high-energy production featuring a talented company, and that means both the singers and the onstage band. They all have great musical chops and lots of power, but I was happy to find that none of it is ever too loud in a very well-balanced sound design. Uh, this show is a visual trip, too. I just mentioned my hair. This show, its <laughs> designers have over-the-top wigs and costume designs in an altogether Halloween-like version <laughs> of the 1980s, you know? Uh, but all of that being said, now you said, you, you noted that if this sort of show and this period of music is something that you like, then you're going to like this show. I have to say that despite the strength of the production and the individual performers and all those things I just mentioned, uh, Rock of Ages is not a show I like. And The Fault, Dear Brutus, is not in its onstage stars, <laughs> but in its writing or concept or its general attitude, which I find utterly puerile and vulgar. Now, if I want puerile and vulgar humor, I can tell myself my own jokes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't need to lay down money to see that the Mercury Theater. You know, it pretends to be about the 1980s rock scene in Los Angeles, but it has no resemblance to the reality of that scene. And yes, I do remember it. I did. My my mother lived out in L.A. then, and I spent time out that way. Indeed, its characters and ridiculous plot twists have no resemblance to real people or real life. And yet, even though they don't resemble real life. Every plot trope and twist is predictable and a cliche. So, okay, maybe it's a spoof, but of what? You know, you can only spoof something which has some recognizable reality behind it. Right. Now, I would agree with you there. It's not like yeah. Spinal Tap, which would be a far superior uh, spoof or parody or satire or whatever we wish to call it yeah. of, the, of that era. Absolutely. I agree with you there. Now, now, one thing, though, you know, Carrie, some people, some listeners might be saying, all right, all right, if Jonathan thinks it's puerile, I know it's just a show for me. <laughs> and, you know what? and you know what? That's perfectly okay. In fact, it's more than okay. Because I hope, Carrie, I hope that you and I are consistent enough in our opinions so that listeners can gauge how they're going to like or not like the show from our reactions. Right. And, you know, it's it's funny because I mentioned Mamma Mia, and I had much the same reaction to that, although I will say that I probably enjoy the music of ABBA more than I do most of the hair metal. (laughs) I like the music of ABBA. I found Mamma Mia to be pretty insubstantial as well, and I, but yet it has a huge following, as we well know. And I think some of it is that idea of people recapturing a period of their youth. I mentioned the people who were in the show, uh, or in the audience the night that I saw the show, and... You know, I'm of mixed feelings because on the one hand, yes, is this is this a show that needs to be revived right now? Probably not. <laughs> on the other hand, theater is in a tough spot, and I think theaters like the Mercury, which, as you and I have talked about, closed down. I mean, it looked like it was going to go away during the pandemic and has come back and has been building. I think they're kind of, you know, they're that mid-sized space. They're in a tough spot as far as how do we fill these seats. And so I'm not saying this is a completely commercial decision on their part. It would not surprise me, however, if that was not a big factor, knowing that there are people who really do want to just come out and have nothing but a good time. And judging by the size of the crowd, I went on a Thursday night, which is not always the biggest night, you know, for theater in Chicago, and it was pretty full, even without the birthday party crowd. So I can't fault them for making that kind of commercial calculation. I don't know how you feel about that, but I think we're going to see some of this. Or maybe, you know, I can sit on high and say, look, I would never, you know, people don't need to see that show. Yeah, do they need to see it? Maybe not. But is it a fun thing? And there's so much going on that people just want to, you know, put their minds on hold and groove out. Okay. (laughs) So I'm kind of in the middle on this. I don't know how you feel about it. I, I, I don't criticize the Mercury Theater and its management for, yeah. for programming us. I mean, they've done a wide variety of shows and musicals, from the Adams Family to Mary Poppins to, you know, Rock of Ages, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. So they, right. they've been, over the, the years, even the last couple of years, they've present, been presenting a, uh, a, a wide range of material. And I want to emphasize again that this production is energetic, and, and yes, Begrudgingly, I'll say it's even funny in its own raunchy, jejune way. It's just <laughs> not to my taste. Right. It, it features over two dozen 1980 songs by great writers, great bands, some of whom everyone, you, you, everybody's going to know some of them, even me. 
But, you know, none of them, oddly, none of them are really heavy metal, although the show talks a lot right. about metalheads. It is more pop really, metal, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. what it really marks is, Gary, what you were saying in your, in your introductory remarks, um, it, it's glam rock rather than, than heavy metal rock. You know, and that's just fine with me. But so you know, there's something I was thinking about. You know, when Jersey Boys first came out, I remember reading a piece, and I, I apologize, I can't remember who it was, said... The thing about the you know the, the four seasons is we talk about sixties music we talk about the British invasion we talk about the Stones the Beatles the Who yet there were a huge number of people who for whom the sixties was the four seasons you know it was that was yeah. their music and I think maybe there's something with what Gary was saying in his introduction you know if we want to be you know you know looking at it from on high of course you know the eighties punk and you know, the growth of rap and hip hop and you know, these were the forces for social change. Okay, yeah, but there were an awful lot of people, and I know many of them who really did, you know, they were they were looking for Guns N' Roses. They were looking for Journey. They were looking for, you know, uh, you know, Poison and all the other bands that we're going to hear in this, um, in this show. So I, I wonder if that's part of it, too, that um, the history of pop and rock music is written by people who are not necessarily always... Um, aligned with certain kinds of tastes. I'm putting that as um, <laughs> delicately as possible. All right. Um, all right. So, so what what we're saying, Carrie? Let's 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 boil it down, right? <laughs> you pay your money, you take your choice. If you know Rock of Ages from its long and highly successful history on stage or as the movie, mm-hmm. if you know it and you like it, then this Mercury Theater production may be just your cup of tea. Absolutely, yeah. Rock of Ages continues at the Mercury Theater through September 10th. And uh, before we wrap up, uh, we wanted to pass along uh, some sad news, uh, the passing of uh, somebody that was involved in the local theater scene, but more behind the scenes. Uh, yes, we received, Carrie and I received a word, uh, oh, about a week or so ago, of the death, apparently several weeks ago in July, of Douglas Reagan who was 79 years old um, and had been suffering from a terminal illness. And probably very few listeners will know that name. Uh, Douglas Reagan was a high-spirited force to deal with in Chicago theater as a producer and as a theater owner, not as a playwright, not as a performer, not as a musician, but as a producer and a theater owner who had a large impact on Chicago theater in the 80s and 90s, uh, principally. And um, uh, he was not from Chicago, but he got himself an MBA from Northwestern University and set up residence here. He made a lot of money as a commodities trader, and I think he also had some family money because he lived very well. He had himself a, uh, an apartment. He owned a unit at the the, the Ritz, um, uh, I guess that's Water Tower Place, no, or the, the Ritz or the Water Tower Place uh, condominiums down on Michigan Avenue. Uh, but particularly with regard to theater, which he loved and supported, he was a co-founder of the wonderful volunteer organization known as the Saints. And many of you uh, listeners who are regular theater goers probably have been had your tickets torn or been shown to your seats by the Saints, who were volunteer ushers at a wide range, a large number of Chicago-area theaters. 
and they do other behind-the-scenes supports work as well. So Doug Reagan was a co-founder of the Saints, and then he went on to buy himself a theater, the old Ivanhoe Theater, uh, Clark Street at Wellington on Chicago's north side, that is now a Binney's uh, Beverage Depot. Uh, it uh, was a well-known, well-established theater, and as a producer, he presented a number of shows there. He offered the space to any number of Chicago theater companies at uh, rental rates uh, far below what the market would demand. Uh, he gave uh, a lot of breaks to a lot of small theater companies and really made his mark. He also designed an advertising program whereby he would buy, say, a half page on the arts pages, the arts section, if you will, of the Sunday papers, and then subdivided into one-inch and two-inch ads, which he sold at greatly reduced rates to theaters so that they could afford it. Uh, he was often in conflict with <laughs> you know, the establishment, whether that means the League of Chicago Theaters or Actors' Equity Association. He had disputes over the years with both. And Doug himself was a very colorful character. He had an unruly mop of black hair. He rarely was uh, dressed sharply. He, he, he preferred disheveled. He was, uh, I'm going to use a word, he was nerdy if you met him and didn't get to know him. But he was very, very smart. He was very, very dedicated. He had a wicked sense of humor, and he not only uh, talked the talk, but he was a man who walked the walk. You know, what struck me in reading some of the, the tributes to him, and I never met Doug. I do remember the Ivanhoe, but um, as you mentioned, that was sold in 2000 and is now Binney's. Uh, but companies like Looking Glass did their first uh, production of Metamorphoses there, which went on, of course, to become a Tony-winning uh, production. And even many smaller companies like uh, Improv Olympic, now Bio, which is no longer quite so small, City Lit, the Free Associates, they all had their homes there. And what I really noticed from people writing about Doug on Facebook and other social media sites was that, you know, we don't have as many producers as we used to have in Chicago. There are a lot of companies, and a lot of them have closed, yeah, you know, so often the model has been that it's an ensemble that forms from people who all graduate from the same university theater training program, or it's a director who wants to get more opportunities directing, or actors who want to get more opportunities acting. As you mentioned, Doug was none of those things. <laughs> he was a producer. He was a man who loved theater and was willing to put some money into sustaining this. And I don't really know that we have a lot of people in the Chicago scene who are like that now. I don't think that there's ever been a lot of them because we just don't have much of a commercial theater scene in Chicago. But it occurs to me, again, as we're coming back from the pandemic closings and, and so many companies are really trying to find their way forward, we would, we, would, uh, we would be in a better position perhaps if we had a Doug Bragan or two really active today. Yes, indeed. It would be interesting to see who would emerge what they would do, what kind of creative energy they would bring. You know, our, our principal review today, we talked about uh, Rock of Ages at the Mercury Theater. The Mercury Theater was originally opened by just such an independent producer, Absolutely. Michael Cullen, mm -hmm. Michael Cullen, and who also owns a couple of bars and restaurants along the way, uh, founded at least two theater companies that produced in a, staged their shows in a wide variety of spaces, uh, his original company called Travelite traveled and did one-act plays in pubs and took it on the road 
And then he was instrumental in setting up the Briar Street Theater and was involved in several of its early productions before he uh, partnered and bought and renovated the, the Mercury Theater space on Southport. And um, Michael uh, has been uh, out of the producing scene for oh, about 20 years now, but was a mover and shaker. So, yes, your point is well taken. Where are they? Where right. are those those right. and, those and, charismatic, quixotic, independent producers? <laughs> a tip of our hats, as they used to say, to Douglas Bragan. Well, thanks for that. Carrie Jonathan, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Gary. Next week, and we'll talk about the new show at Steep. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. Pop culture fans from all over the Midwest descended upon the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center this weekend for four days of meetups, panel discussions, and autograph sessions. Fan Expo Chicago started on Thursday and wraps up later today. The annual event casts a wide net in terms of focus. Comics, film, TV, anime, gaming, and various other genres are all represented. Some of the big attractions at this year's expo are some famous cast reunions. You see, Einstein has just become the world's first time traveler. I sent him into the future. One minute into the future to be exact. And precisely, 1.21 a.m. in zero seconds, we shall catch up with him at the time machine. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? Besides... Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, and Leah Thompson from Back to the Future are here. And so is most of the cast from the original National Lampoon's Vacation. Crack open those sandwiches I got at the gas station. I'm so hungry I can eat a sandwich from a gas station. <laughs> There's one for everyone. Oh, Audrey, wake up, Aunt Edna. It's time for her to eat and take her pill. Please get off me. Mom, tell Audrey to quit pushing on Edna on me. I'm sick of her lying on me all the time. Be quiet. Eddie. Honey, it's only a few hours to Phoenix. Let her be. She's fine. She's not fine. She's fine. Don't be silly. She's not fine, Clark. She's dead. The ongoing SAG after strike is making things a little messier for film and TV stars. Actors are only supposed to represent themselves rather than promote any studio projects. That hasn't dampened the spirits of the thousands of fans that were swarming the convention's main hall the afternoon I was there. Several dressed up in cosplay as their favorite characters. I caught up with Andrew Moyes, vice president of Fan Expo HQ, to talk about what goes into putting a fan convention like this together. First, a little history. In a way, this convention has a long history in this area. Some listeners might remember an event titled Wizard World. Fan Expo is really a continuation of that tradition. And this is a legacy convention on the uh, convention circuit. It's been going for over 50 years. So very few conventions have been running for that long. San Diego Comic-Con is probably one that comes to mind. Yes, this has been here for many years, run by Wizard World, and we picked it up uh, about two years ago. And so we delivered it as Fan Expo Chicago last year and again this year. When it comes to programming, 
a fan convention like that? What's what's the starting point? Well, I think um, you you need your anchors. You need to understand what the key elements are, and those for us are our genres. So anime, comics, sci-fi, horror, gaming, those key sort of pillars for us. Um, and that's what separates us from other shows. I think we are a multi-genre event. And you'll see that we really feed into the authenticity of each of those genres. In comics, one of the greatest comic creators out there, Frank Miller, is here this weekend. In anime, some of the greatest voice actors on the circuit. This is hugely popular right now, anime. And then, of course, on screen, cosplay. Again, we really look at filling those pillars because everyone's a fan of something. And we want to make sure that everyone is accounted for at our events. Are there unique elements for different regions? So is the Fan Expo in Chicago different than the one in Dallas? Oh yeah, I mean, these are local Comic Cons. These aren't sort of a rinse and repeat, if you will. Every convention needs to have the spirit of the location it's in. I mean, for instance, you know, great to have the National Lampoon's uh, right. reunion happening here, a great connection there. Um, and a lot of the fabric, too, of the show, all our community groups, a lot of our vendors are, are local. If you go through Artist Alley, you'll see a lot of local vendors. So definitely all of the events have the flavor of the city in which they operate. So you mentioned National Lampoon's Vacation, obviously a very popular film. The fictional Griswold family is from the Chicago area, so maybe there is some increased interest for local residents. For something like that, where there's some pretty recognizable names involved, is it a challenge getting everyone back to the same spot for a reunion? Oh yeah, and I think that's what makes it so special because, I mean, even if you look at the team-up of Michael J. Fox, Tom Wilson, Leah Thompson, and Christopher Lloyd, uh, many of them still working, many of them in huge demand. So to get them all together to meet their fans is, is a truly unique experience. And for us as planners, yes, there's always element schedules, you know, there's so many layers that go into getting these people all together. Uh, that's why it's kind of a magical moment when it happens and such a unique opportunity because these titles, these characters, they've had such a huge impact on people's lives and uh, they get to live out their dream by getting another step closer and another step sort of in connection to um, those titles, those characters, and the actors that breathe life into those characters is just such a special moment. Is the SAG-AFTRA strike, is that affecting anything with your operations? Well, I think the only difference is it's a little different about what we can talk with our actors about, you know, so we're not diving as deep into the work necessarily or the titles, but in a way that's a silver lining there because you're getting to know them more as people. You're getting to know what inspires them, what maybe brought them to acting. So there's different questions we can ask. The conversation might be a little different, but I think the opportunity to connect with them, obviously have a photo, have an autograph, see them in their Q&A, hasn't changed. Um, and, uh, you know, our, the nature of our conventions have also been carved out. Um, so these the actors still have the opportunity to meet with their fans. So obviously it's something we're being very respectful of and acknowledging um, and doing our best to be respectful of all areas of it. Fan Expo Chicago continues later today at the Donald D. Stevens Convention Center in Rosemont. Today's the last day. You can find out more info at fanexpohq.com slash fanexpochicago. You're tuned into the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. 
Does that melody sound familiar? Perhaps you played a little Donkey Kong back in the day. This is DK Island Swing. A reoccurring musical theme throughout the Donkey Kong video game series. Of course, when you play Donkey Kong Country on Super Nintendo, it sounded like this. took me forever to beat this game. It sounds a little different when a big band takes it on. And that's exactly what the Chicago-based Blue Shift Big Band has done. DK Island Swing is just one of the video game-inspired covers on the 17-piece ensemble's 2022 album, Joystick Jazz. An appreciation of video games is one of the things the co-founders of the Blue Shift Big Band, guitarist Chris Parsons and drummer Joel Bear, have in common. Another is the love of big bands. I recently caught up with the Chicago musicians to talk about two things that normally don't go together, jazz and video games. What's the origin story of the Blue Shift Big Band? Joel and I met at then Elmhurst College 2010. Fall of 2010, we played in combo together and really hit it off. And then after we had graduated, we'd get each other on gigs. You know, I got him on a church gig. He got me on a couple blues gigs. And but we always had this love of big band. We would always talk about, you know, our favorite bands and favorite drummers, favorite rhythm sections. And a few years ago, he had this idea. He had enough stock charts to just say, hey, let's start a reading band. And I was in. We had been looking. We hadn't played with each other for a while. And uh, that was a fun excuse. And it quickly turned from being a reading band to saying, ooh, let's start doing some. Joel wanted to be recording more and we have a philosophy of recording your own original arrangements or music. So started getting original charts commissioned and within a few years, within two years, I think we had the first two records recorded. Not released, but we had them recorded. So mm. and then it's just picked up a lot of steam in the last couple of years. Yeah, definitely. What goes into putting a big band together? Do you have to recruit players? <laughs> a lot of money. Yes, lots of time and money. Uh, we had a pretty good sort of base of players from I went to Elmhurst, like Chris said, and then I went to DePaul after that. So we knew a lot of, of players who were good and who liked playing big band. So we just started plugging guys or girls in and seeing what happened. And, um, you know, we go through players based on their interest and how much they wanted to contribute to the band and that kind of thing. But eventually we found a group of people who wanted to do this. They wanted to play. They wanted to show up every week. What's the size of the band now? 17-piece? 17-piece yeah. big band. So five saxes, four bones, four trumpets, guitar, bass, drums, piano. So like Chris said, we started out playing stock charts, and I like strongly believed that if we're going to record anything, like we're not going to record a bassy tune. You know, they've are like the bassy band has recorded definitive versions of all those tunes. What are we going to do for that? But if we could record our own music, we could play it and record it better than anybody else. So that was kind of the impetus to start 
getting Chicago Arrangers involved. We started paying guys to write for the band. Chris writes for the band. And I think now we're six years in and we have a book of about 85 original arrangements. Wow. Yeah. That keeps growing. So yeah, like Chris said, a lot of time, a lot of money. And the big thing, I think a driving thing for our success is we wanted it to be a band. We'd played enough, and this isn't a knock on anybody at all. Um, we just played in a lot of reading bands or like rotating personnel, big bands. And it only costs money to bring the best players in the world in for a recording session. But we wanted to have a band. And I feel like we finally have crossed that pivot point of saying everybody here today is in the band. It's not just a gig for anybody here. And um, we look at the success of like the Vanguard band, the Basie band, you know, uh, Clayton Hamilton have been kind of a big influence on how they run their band on us. And it's a family, you know, you're not writing trumpet one part, you're writing a Snooky Young part. And that's kind of the philosophy we've been able to, we've been lucky enough to be able to take with this band over the last couple of years is we know the players we're writing for. And when someone needs to leave, it's actually kind of a bummer now because we built a thing around what people in the band are doing, but that's a fun place for us to be. We knew we weren't going to be making a lot of money on this, so we might as well enjoy the people we're with and... You got into the big band game for the the money and, oh, yeah. and yeah. drugs and women. Yeah, yeah, all of, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the sex, drugs, and, and big band. Yeah, that's, that's why I got into jobbing too. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> We were talking off mic, and one of the, the things that came up was there's still maybe some misconceptions about the term big band that you guys run into sometimes. I think when people hear the term big band, they think World War II, Glenn Miller, uh, Benny Goodman, and, and that's part of it. That's part of the history of the music for sure. But there's so much – when I hear that term, I think of a kind of ensemble, an American orchestra, saxophones, trumpets, trombones, rhythm section. I mean, my favorite arranger is Bill Holman. What would always be said about him is he plays the orchestra. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do with our band is, you know, that's a lot of a, a lot of frequencies you're dealing with when it comes to a big band. So you have a lot of potential. And then you have a rhythm section. And luckily, because we our influences as players stem from not just jazz, but rock, blues, many different styles, you can tap into... You know, you want a Zeppelin thing to happen for four bars, it'll happen for four bars mm -hmm. because we have a lot of uh, influence coming in. But then that's that's been um, really fun for our writers and arrangers to kind of have carte blanche and just say, go for it. And uh, it's not in the mood. Right. <laughs> One of the things we talk about with this band is, you know, in some big bands, there are star soloists you know, where there will be a band full of amazing improvisers, and that's kind of what the show is based on, and that's amazing. But in our band, we feel like the charts are the stars. Mm -hmm. These amazing pieces of music that are difficult and we're executing at a high level, that's what we think is, is really fun and incredible. And within those, we do have great soloists, but the music isn't supposed to be just a vehicle for improvisation. It includes improvisation. Yeah. But the charts are, they're amazing pieces of music. When you talk about like a, a reading band, so what does that mean compared to like what you're doing? A reading band is just like the same kind of, you know, Basie charts, Maynard charts, Buddy Rich charts, just the same kind of, there's like this, what would you call it? Um, a canon of big band material that exists that everybody's been playing since 
senior year of high school through college and then going on. And it's cool because there, there's a familiarity between all the reps. So people can just kind of walk into a band. And as long as you know enough about the people, you've read the charts a million times, you're going to be fine. With our stuff, we're the only ones to have ever read it. So you have to really put the work in when you come into this band because it's the music's not easy. Yeah, there's a lot of difficult and arrangements. Yeah, and we don't ask the writers to write grade two charts. Like, we ask to throw the, everything at the kitchen sink and then, tell you know, we're not putting limitations on what the music is from the arrangers and writers. So it's a little bit more demanding musically. You can't just show up and read it. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section on WDCB. I'm talking with drummer Joel Bear and guitarist Chris Parsons about their group, the Blue Shift Big Band. The ensemble, which officially formed in 2017, wants to push the envelope of what a big band can sound like. So it's not just a swing band. It's <laughs> it's certainly not a dance band. But a lot of the, the tunes we're playing are, like one of the newer Mario tunes that we're playing is like a surf guitar feature. Or, you know, we're playing stuff that's kind of got some a lot of other influences, rock and metal influences, as well as swing and Latin and the more traditional big band kind of genres. So you mentioned Mario, and that's what we in the biz call a segue. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was reading something, I think, about Fulton Street uh, Collective and how they're celebrating 10 years, and then I saw uh, Blue Shift Big Band was playing there recently and was going to be performing video game music, and that like sparked my interest. So as we were trying to figure out approaches for original big band music, we were commissioning charts of standards and, and kind of standard jazz rep, new arrangements of, of that kind of stuff. But we wanted something that might grab people who didn't know anything about big band music or jazz or, or whatever. We wanted something that just connected with people. And for our generation, I don't know if there's anything that's sort of more salient than these these great melodies coming out of early classic video games. People like Koji Kondo come to mind, Mario, Zelda, those great melodies. So we started having guys arrange charts in this, you know, for the, from these games and include improvisation sections. And pretty quickly, we started asking for more interesting ensemble parts, and it really started growing in our in our gigs. And then I wanted to record it. So in January of 2020, we recorded our first both our first sort of standards originals record and our first video game big band record in a two-day session at Electrical Audio. And then shortly after that, the pandemic hit and (laughs) (laughs) we had a lot of time on our hands to mix and master and shop that around. But we ended up getting picked up by uh, a label in LA called I Am 8-Bit, who they kind of manufacture and produce premium video game merchandise, as Mm -hmm. I would say. And so our first album came out with them in November of 2022 and it's going to be out on vinyl soon and our second record with them is going to come out as well pretty soon first album's called joystick jazz yes and it was interesting because i as i mentioned so i read about what you what the band was doing and so i started researching and i was finding all these articles on like video game sites and not on like jazz sites you know i found some on jazz sites too but it was just interesting so like the video game community seemed to to take an interest have you guys received any of that feedback or or heard from like video game fans i I think we've had people interested in the band who they, they don't really know anything about the jazz canon they don't know who louis armstrong is or john coltrane but they know these tunes from sonic and zelda and mario Mm -hmm. and that connects like exactly what we set out to do that connects with them on like a a really 
personal level. Now all of a sudden this music, which they might not have ever heard or dreamed of before, besides in the game, has meaning to them. And I think that's pretty cool. The other angle we were intentional about is there there are some bands out there already doing the video game big band thing. And it's just, you know, it, it wasn't really our lane. It, I don't want to call it tongue in cheek because that makes it disparaging. But it's it's the same. The, the I think the the way I always put it is nobody knows what musical All the Things You Are came from. And it's not the way, you know, boppers were playing it in the 50s. And But they took a great melody and great harmonies and adapted it towards this, this style for bebop. And that was kind of the approach we wanted to take with this video game stuff is there's great melodies here, there's great harmonies there, and it's recognizable to a whole new generation. So that's the thing I think we're really proud of on this is it stands on its own. You don't need to know about video games to dig this music. We've had people, um, you know, teachers of ours come out to our gigs and check it out who've never played a video game in their life and they go, if you didn't tell me this was from a video game, I would have just thought it was a great <laughs> tune. And that's the win. And then at the same time, we have a kid now that's come to three of our shows. He saw us at Hey Nani out in Arlington Heights. He's about 13 or 14 years old. And he wants to write a big band chart. It's a video game tune he wants to write for us. But he had always had an interest. He saw something we were doing and wants to has gotten into big band music and asks for recommendations on who he should listen to outside. It's like, well, you know, you could serve two, two purposes here. And as long as you get kids inspired to like the genre and like the art form, here's a ton of stuff you can do with it. So that's been really gratifying for us is the reach it has is to kids that know about video games but don't know about big band and then big band fans just hearing new music. Yeah. That's, that's great. One of the cool things about radio is uh, we could play some music. So what should we play off Joystick Jazz? We should play Treasure Trove Cove. Yeah. That was the lead single and a great chart by our good friend Neil Carson, who's a Chicago saxophonist and arranger.
is Treasure Trove Cove off the Blue Shift Big Band's album Joystick Jazz. The music originally appearing in the video game Banjo-Kazooie. You both referenced charts a a few times, so I just wanted to to get into that a little more. There are these iconic video game scores that are instantly recognizable to a lot of people, but the, the music, the charts, aren't readily available. Those are something you have to create for Big Band. Correct. So typically this process goes something like this. I'll pick a tune that I think would be a good big band tune. Or I'll talk to one of our arrangers and say, hey, is there a tune that really speaks to you that you would have fun doing? And then they write this out for our specific instrumentation, like I said, which is 17-piece jazz orchestra. So no, these aren't stock charts. You can't just buy them. We're buying them, which is part of the upfront cost of having a big band is, you know, it costs more to have someone write a chart than just to go out and buy a stock arrangement of a famous tune. But like I said, we get to imprint our creativity on these charts. You know, as a drummer, I get to play with the parts and create um, these sections and give my interpretation of what this chart should be, uh, which is cool. But yes, everybody's reading music on a gig because that's the only way you can get 17 people to play together. We're not just a video game band. It, that just seems to be the most lucrative part of the, right, right. <laughs> the business right now. But yeah, everything we have is original. You can't get it anywhere else, which is fun. Yeah, I think that's an important component of this band is the original music, the sort of, I guess, branding, for lack of a better word. Just If you come to a, a Blue Shift Big Band show, you're going to hear us do our thing. And I think that's pretty unique among big bands in Chicago where a lot of bands are playing, you know, great charts, Basie and, and Thad and Mel and those kinds of things, but it was important for us to do our own thing. And you guys are doing some new innovative things uh, from the big band perspective. How do audiences respond to, to some of the more ambitious material? When we do our Andy's residency, you know, we'll play two sets every second Monday, and to see the reaction of these people who for the most part, I would say the crowd there doesn't know what they're coming in for. They're, it's a tourist crowd, and they're coming to see whatever Andy's is presenting. And when it's us and they hear like a Zelda thing, I mean, the reactions we've been getting are pretty amazing. Like people cheer at the end of these tunes. And it's yeah. like for for Big Band, for Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> and But that's really cool because mm-hmm. these people who didn't know what they were coming in for, really it connects with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really exciting. So people can see you at uh, Andy's the second Monday of the month every week and then Fulton Street. We're there typically the first Thursday of every month. And if people want to, uh, can they still buy the vinyl of Joystick Jazz? They can still pre-order it. There's still a lot of logistical challenges getting the vinyl in, but we've been promised very soon. So, but yeah, pre-orders are still happening for that. It comes with the digital download, or you could just do the digital download. We're on all the normal streaming sites for the the record spotify apple music yeah youtube favorite uh video game of all time uh super mario 64 yeah it's probably the best one ever <laughs> okay it's me mario um that was quick <laughs> yeah as a nintendo 64 fan i'll also throw Star Fox 64 in there no okay fair enough big nintendo 64 guys chris joel thanks so much appreciate you coming to the studio it was a pleasure talking with you of course, for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. That was Chris Parsons and Joel Baer, the co-founders of the Blue Shift Big Band. 
You can check them out live at Andy's Jazz Club this Monday night and go to blueshiftbigband.com to find out where else they'll be playing and you can check out some of their recorded music. That's at blueshiftbigband.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Art Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>